Are you a Christian who finds yourself struggling with the same sin over and over again? Do you feel like your life doesn't seem to reflect the resurrection you know to be true? Have you tried dozens of books and techniques only to find yourself discouraged and ready to give up? Well, we've got good news for you. Questions like these inspired our journey into the rich biblical truths we call New Heart Theology. And we believe if you join us in this journey, we'll learn together, we'll wrestle together, and we'll strive together unto godliness. Welcome to another episode of the New Heart Theology Podcast. I'm Kevin Lehman, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host yet again, Grant Forrester. Hello, everyone. How's it going, buddy? Today, we are continuing our consideration of the five points of New Heart Theology, or NHT as we like to abbreviate it. So as a quick review, I would like to go over our five points of NHT, and so they are as follows. One, the holistic duality of man. Two, the myopic soul in a corrupted body. Three, the complete regeneration and indwelling of the soul. Four, the disciplining of our bodies unto righteousness. And five, the promise of glorified bodies to come. This afternoon, we're looking at the second part of our second point that covers the condition of the pre-salvation person. And in this episode, we'll be focusing specifically on the corrupted body aspect. And I thought, Grant, we could start just by looking at the Old Testament evidence for the corrupted body. And honestly, I found in my research that the Old Testament has very little to say about how the curse of sin affected our mortal bodies. Mm -hmm. I think the main reason for this is that the Old Testament Jews had only a very general idea of what constituted a person. They engaged in philosophy because everyone does, Mm -hmm. but they didn't study philosophy and they weren't exactly scientists either. So most of their understanding of sin was directed at the heart But when they use this term, they rarely meant soul. It's not even likely they meant specifically immaterial when they would use the word heart. They just meant everything going on inside a person. This was their holistic philosophy of the person. Whether they knew that was their philosophy or not, that's how they viewed the person. Was it was this holistic, everything is is the person and and the person is one. Mm -hmm. So anything that they couldn't see, which would be, you know, like thoughts, emotions, wills, etc., was bundled into this one word heart. And so we don't really learn anything until later in the New Testament, specifically with Paul and the influences Greek philosophy had on his metaphysics, that many of the invisible or internal functions that the Old Testament writers would have labeled heart are actually physical functions, Mm -hmm. though internal, and a product of the physical part of the mind, the brain. That's good stuff, man. Yeah. So now we're going to do multiple episodes covering both the holistic view of the person in the Old Testament and the internal functions of the person. So don't get hung up here now, but suffice it to say, the Old Testament didn't have a strong view of the body-soul dichotomy due to their holistic approach to the person. This doesn't mean it wasn't true. It just means that they hadn't gotten there yet in God's progressive revelation. And that's why we believe both the holistic duality of man, which we talked about in the previous episode. 
Kevin is right. The Old Testament saints were not wrong, but they were missing much of the language that is used in the New Testament. Like Kevin said, thanks to uh, Greek philosophy and Paul being Hellenized and being well aware of the Greek philosophy. Just like the analogy we used previously regarding the precision we can bring to certain topics like the crucifixion, hands and feet, and then more precise language, metacarpals and metatarsals. Because of 2,000 years of study, we have much more information about the area of anatomy. Likewise, with further revelation in the New Testament and the philosophical growth in the early church and into the Middle Ages, we can now speak with more precision regarding the soul, the body, and all the varying functions of the two put together, the person. And and again, we're... I think don't we have planned we're going to do an episode on absolutely the the holistic view of Old Testament Jews like we're going to look at that and spend a lot of time just kind of thinking through that yes yes but yeah that's a great summary for now where we're at in this next section I want to look at what do we know about the the body in the New Testament uh, forewarning I was actually just scrolling through my notes for the show I'm going to talk for a long time here so say goodbye to Grant for a few minutes and uh, but he will be back he is it's still all good. here it's it's all good stuff he's not he's not going anywhere but let me I'm going to quote unquote rant here for just a minute so um, what about the New Testament what does the New Testament say about the body about the pre-regenerate body about the regenerate body uh, which I know Grant's going to speak on here in a, in a, in a second, kind of the, the difference in, the, in those two things. But this is a long story I'm going to try to make concise. Here's the problem. We tend to, especially in the biblical counseling world, overcomplicate what is meant by flesh in the New Testament. This causes us to miss out on a whole lot of theology pertaining to the body. During my graduate work in biblical counseling, I've probably heard the flesh defined as two dozen different things. I've heard it called the old man, the passions the world tempts us with, the temptations of the devil, the things in us that hates God, and that's really just to name a few. Most of these ideas correctly identify the flesh as having something to do with sin, but generally they miss the obvious. Mm -hmm. According to the BDAG, which is a well-trusted Greek-to-English lexicon, the word most commonly used for flesh, which is sarx in the Greek, means the material that covers the bones of a human or animal body, the physical body as a functioning entity. It can mean one who is or become a physical being. It can also, on rare occasions, even mean the outward side of life. The point is, everything about this word points to the material realm, and specifically in almost every case, the material body. I honestly don't know why we try so hard to make this word into something more than it is. My hunch is that we're afraid of sounding Gnostic, and we're going to cover why NHT isn't Gnosticism in an upcoming episode, very soon actually. Um, It might even be the first episode we do after the five points, but calling the body sinful is not Gnosticism. It is sinful. Paul calls it sinful. Peter calls it sinful. This is very different than saying all matter is sinful. Now, here's what I'd like to do. I want us to look at Romans 6 and 7. And for time's sake, I want to do something a little bit unorthodox. So bear with me. Most people who know me know that I speculate Paul probably had what we would call an ADD mind. It is at least evident in his writing that Paul is uh, loose with his thoughts. Uh, He likes to chase rabbit trails, and sometimes that can make understanding his meaning a bit difficult, 
Romans 5 and 8 is a great example of this. Paul has a main line of thought talking about the sin nature and why, as a believer, he still struggles with sinful desire. But he also has some nonlinear thought that is kind of sprinkled into primary argumentation. And, and that, is, that is a good thing. Everything Paul sprinkles in, as I have said, is invaluable to the complete meaning of the text. But I was studying one day, and I was sitting here thinking, from one ADD mind to another, I need to push the nonlinear to the side and read Paul's primary argument for what it is. So I compiled only the verses from Romans 6 and 7 that deal with the sin nature or the location of the sin nature or Paul's battle against sin. And not surprisingly, it actually reads really well. I'm also going to change where the ESV translates uh, the, the word members in the English to say body parts, because that's literally what the word means. And I think it will give us some, some better context to what Paul is saying here. And now before I read this to you, I always encourage people to go and read the entire two chapters for yourself. The purpose of this is not to cut out applicable verses, but to combine the verses that are important to understanding the origin of sin and the location of the flesh. I am hoping by doing this, it will help you think more clearly through Paul's argument in Romans 6 and 7. So where is Paul saying the sin nature is located? What is it in us that still desires to sin? Paul is answering these questions and essentially the broader, bigger question, if we are Christians, why do we still sin? So here we go. Beginning in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our body parts to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, listen to this, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my body parts another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body parts. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In two chapters, there are at least 12 references to sin residing in the body. And there are four specific references to the inner being being in obedience to God. And so again, if you're going to wave the Gnostic flag at us, you're going to have to call Paul a Gnostic too, because he clearly believes the sin nature for the believer resides in the body. But he also says we can buffet our bodies to glorify God. And that's what we're saying. The Christian life is learning how to use our new inner obedience, our completely regenerate heart, to put the body into submission and bring glory to God. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this in, epi- in, in the fourth point, the episode on the fourth point. But that's about as opposite from Gnosticism as it gets. We're saying glorifying God in the body is the whole point of our theology. Yeah, I don't see how you walk away from reading Romans 5 through 8 and think anything other than the flesh seems to be a really big problem in my sin life. Yeah, and I would say not only like flesh as in like just this like abstract term that we're always throwing around, but Paul clearly indicates that the flesh resides in his physical presence, that's, that's material good. being. That's good. This is, this is not the only passage in the New Testament that connects the idea of flesh or physical or body with uh, sin. For example, we could look at 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is physical. Uh, Galatians 5, 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that's physical, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Hmm. which wage war against your soul. Just in case you are confused, Peter draws a, a stark line between the flesh and the soul, the material and the immaterial. That's an excellent point. And so while we are in this life, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But wait, aren't most of these passages talking about believers? And so regeneration would only apply to a believer because those are the only people who are regenerated. But regeneration does not change the body. This may be something that is surprising to you, but bear with us. Let me explain what what we mean. Regeneration brings the soul to life, which is what we just discussed in the last episode. Regeneration brings the soul to life. However, the body, as Paul is talking about here in Romans 6 and 7, is still the seedbed for sin. The body is not only sinful all the time, but when sin arises in the life of the believer, it is coming from the flesh. 
because inwardly our new heart, our souls have been made alive and have been fused with the Spirit of God. So passages about unbelievers in the flesh and passages about believers in the flesh metaphysically are going to be the same. The only difference between the unbeliever and the believer is that the believer can chasten and subdue the flesh. So an analogy that helps me wrestle with this is fire. The flesh is not neutral in its relationship to sin. Fire is not neutral in its relationship to destruction. Fire will consume. Fire will destroy if it is left unchecked. Fire can save lives, good things, and fire can destroy lives, bad things. Fire by nature consumes. Fire must be contained and controlled or all it will do is destroy. And so the believer is equipped by God, the Holy Spirit, to subdue the flesh, while the unbeliever can only be consumed by it, like fire. One more thing. Fire isn't thinking about what it's doing. It is just doing what it's doing. Yeah, that's a good point. And Kevin, I believe, you've got an analogy to help us understand the body in relationship maybe to programming. Kevin is also a tech genius as well. Yeah, right, right, right. Sure. Um, no, and I, I did want to say before I jump into into my next section that what you said there was great because the change that takes place for the Christian is is to our immaterial being. And so any passage, like you said, that's dealing with the material body would not be any different. Nothing changes in our material body. And I did want to say, I know that that's kind of a big bomb to drop maybe on somebody who is listening and we are covering the regeneration of the soul in, in the next episode. And then in the next episode, we will be covering uh, disciplining the body Correct. on righteousness. We'll be covering sanctification and how all that works. So we'll have right. a whole discussion on those two topics. Now, in terms of this episode and understanding biblically how we are to look at the corrupted body, I want to throw out this little analogy here. We could think about our bodies as an operating system. And of course, the brain is at the center of that system. Our bodies are essentially operating on their programming. They receive input from the senses, both external and internal, and then respond according to their programming. So when God created man, the operating system was good. It was not perfect because, of course, it failed, but it was good. At the fall, sin was introduced into our operating system like a virus. Our programming was corrupted, so to speak. Now, our bodies don't operate the way they were intended to. That goes for Christian or not Christian. Our bodies don't operate the way they were intended to. So our original desires, such going back to the garden for good things like pleasure and survival and relationship and reproduction and creating and and many other things, these things that were once intended to be enjoyed with God and others have been corrupted so that now our bodies still want those things. But we want them selfishly. We want them in the most pleasurable and efficient way possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't care who we hurt in the process. Not without Christ, anyway. So there's so much more to say here, and we'll, we'll get into it in just a few episodes. But what we want you to know for now is this. The body produces sinful desire. Whether you're in Christ or without Christ, your body produces sinful desire. And if you were left with just a myopic soul from the previous episode to go with your corrupted body, you would never be able to please God. 
Even your quote-unquote good works would be born out of prideful, egotistical sin. This is the state of the person without Christ. So when you combine this episode and the last episode, you get a myopic soul in a corrupted body. You have the full picture of what an unbeliever is dealing with. Mm -hmm. But we also want you to know that if the nearsightedness of your soul were suddenly corrected, say by the Holy Spirit, you would then be free to put the desires of the body to death and use your body for righteousness. Mm -hmm. That is the goal. I think on that, we'll, we'll close up this episode. Uh, Grant, again, thank you so much for being here, brother. I genuinely could not do this without you. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. Um, on the next episode, we'll cover point number three, the complete regeneration of the soul and the indwelling of the soul, even though we may do those in two separate episodes. That's where things are going to get really interesting. Those in our audience can help us out in several ways. We love honest five-star reviews. If you're enjoying the content, subscriptions always help. But most of all, if you want to help support the show, please tell a friend about us. We are grateful for all of the support. As always, if you have questions or comments, please DM me, Kevin Lehman, on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening and God bless.